I'm sure many of you, like us here at The Gilded Gentleman, have been watching the new Julian Fellows series, The Gilded Age, which premiered at the end of January on HBO. Of all the fascinating characters in the show, whether real or imagined, to me, the most fascinating of them all isn't really even human. Well, not one human anyway. It's the city of New York. The Gilded Age, that post-Civil War period roughly from 1870 up to the turn of the century, was a time when New York City was rapidly transforming into a dramatic, modern city. New rules and possibilities were everywhere, from how one moved around the city to technology, including that revolutionary introduction of electricity. And of course, new rules that governed all aspects of society. As we wind down from the first season, I wanted to take a look at the city itself during this period and what we see and what we don't see in the show. And to do that, I've brought together two of my go-to experts as my guests today. So put on your golden spectacles for a unique walk back in time. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks I take you under the velvet ropes and behind the glittering facades of social culture in America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian era. This debut season, we have been heavily focusing on aspects of America's Gilded Age. So to look at New York, this fascinating metropolis, there is, in some ways, no better historian to show us the city than a licensed New York City tour guide. I'm a licensed New York City tour guide myself, and I lead tours through Bowery Boys Walks, but so do my expert guests today, my esteemed colleagues, master tour guides, and good friends, Emma Gess-Consales and Jeff Dobbins. Emma, you will remember, joined me just recently for my show on Ladies Mile and the glamour of Gilded Age shopping. Emma is an experienced guide, lecturer, and author. She has a doctorate degree in Italian Renaissance art and has taught classes on history, art, and the architecture of New York City. She is also an official New York City tour guide and president of the Guides Association of New York. As I said, Emma recently joined me for an episode and just recently was interviewed by the Boston Globe for Where to Find Gilded Age New York. Jeff Dobbins is a writer and also a licensed New York City tour guide. He has led and created tours for Bowery Boys Walks, including the inaugural tour for Bowery Boys Walks, the New York Historical Society, Columbia University, the New York Public Library, and Johns Hopkins University. Jeff is also a photographer, which gives him a particularly unique perspective on the city, and his work is represented in the permanent collection of the Museum of the City of New York. Emma and Jeff, hello. I am so glad that you are here with me today. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be here. Yeah, thrilled to be here. So glad you're joining the Gilded Gentlemen. So let's dive in and take a look at that city that the Russells, the Van Rynes, the Astors, and even Ward McAllister all knew so well. So historians and tour guides often say that the history of New York is really just a race up the island of Manhattan. So Emma and Jeff, when you think about that, how would that apply to what we see in the show The Gilded Age? Well, I think it starts with just where the Russells are living, 
All right, they're on uh, right next to Central Park on East 61st Street. And in the 1880s, that's a relatively new neighborhood as families are moving uptown because the island of Manhattan, which is um, New York City at the time, is just the island of Manhattan. Development starts in the southern tip and works its way up the island. And as the different areas are developed, as industries move in, you know, commercial districts, residential neighborhoods keep leapfrogging up the island and, and skipping the areas that are becoming, becoming less popular and less desirable to move to newer parts of the island, and so growing up the city. Jeff, any thoughts about that race up the island? Uh, yeah, I would just add, it was a time when, well, two incredible things were happening. People were just pouring into the city from all over the country, all over the world. So it was becoming very crowded. The space that was inhabited was becoming teeming with people. The Lower East Side was said to be the most crowded district in the world at the time. And then by chance, we get rapid transit, the elevated railroads. And so people can break out, people can spread out, you don't have to live and work in the same area. So really two things going on the city, the rapid transit, the city developing, and you could live different places. And then of course, as we see in the Gilded Age, those that could afford to move away from all the riffraff and all the mania of the city. So nothing really changes, right? Even in modern days, it's always about more space. And so that world of the Van Rines, and of course, across the street, the Russells, is that world of Fifth Avenue and over on 61st Street. Emma, you do an actual a tour of that neighborhood, the Gilded Age Mansion. So what can you tell us about this neighborhood and what was going on up there? Well, with the development and the, well, really the building of Central Park, it becomes a very attractive and very desirable neighborhood. There's an episode of the show when uh, Peggy and Marion refer to the Lennox Library, which was right on 70th Street and 5th Avenue, so a little north of where the Russells are. And that was a sort of attracting people uptown. But for a long time, that was almost all that was up there. But it became more and more fashionable to move to that area because there was more space. As um, Jeff just mentioned, you can get away from those teeming, crowded neighborhoods. And so by moving up there, you could also create these wonderful new buildings. You had the room to build these enormous structures. And some of them still exist today. Now, not, of course, the Russell's mansion precisely, but there are other mansions that are still standing and that you can see walking up Fifth Avenue from really starting at the corner of the southern corner of Central Park and making your way all the way up and sort of zigzagging along the side streets. And you can see beautiful Beaux-Arts townhouses as well as enormous, enormous mansions right in the heart of the city. So if you squint a little bit, you can still see the Gilded Age oh, you today, totally right? totally see the Gilded Age. <laughs> totally see the Gilded Age. Jeff, what about this world of Central Park? That is, was an amazing construction. And what influence did that have on the city and all of this development? Well, you know, it's been called the great green heart of the city. Emma knows, and you know, in those first decades before the public transportation bought the middle class, the lower class New Yorkers, it was the playground of the very rich who had access to it daily for horseback riding and promenading on the mall and around Bethesda Fountain. And then every afternoon from uh, 4 to 5 p.m., there was a carriage parade and people would line up to watch the, the carriage parade and see what, you know, Mrs. Astor or Mrs. Mrs. Fish was wearing that day. So it was a spectacle. 
And at one point in Central Park, the idea wasn't it to be this equal space for everyone, but it didn't, I'm not sure it really turned out that way, at least at that period. Well, I think in the earlier phases, it wasn't quite so much. And in fact, um, we think of Central Park as like this wonderful playground and everybody can go there and you can you know, literally play there. But um, in the early decades of the park, children had to actually have permission. Like if little boys wanted to have a ball game, they'd have to get permission from their school and have permission to have uh, an organized game there. And there were park, basically park rangers who would make sure everybody was behaving nicely and um, comporting themselves um, correctly. And so it was democratic up to a certain extent. And like Jeff said, you know, the well-to-do, it was a place you would have these carriage parades. And in fact, the sale of carriages and of fancy buggies went right up as soon as Central Park was built because people wanted to show them off. A marketing opportunity, yes, right? Definitely. <laughs> Such a New York thing. Yes. So we look at the Russell's grand mansion. Bertha has, of course, well, I guess George too, has hired Stanford White to create mm-hmm. this great palace, which of course is so different from the Van Ryan's brownstone across the street. So what about Stanford White? You talk a lot about architecture and certainly with your background in, in art, Emma, what do we... What are we looking at when we're looking at that house? Who was Stanford White? What was his work? Well, Stanford White, and uh, what I really enjoy about the Gilded Age is all these different names that are being dropped. And uh, at a certain point, I think Mrs. Morris says, well, why do you use Stanford White? And you didn't um, ask Mr. Hunt, you know, Richard Morris Hunt, to be doing your house. And you had these, um, these great architects, and we can still see their work today. And Richard Morris Hunt was trained in the Beaux-Arts, at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris. And Stanford White was not trained there specifically, but he traveled in Europe and he brought this great European style and to New York and that's what his patrons wanted. They wanted something grand, they wanted something monumental, they wanted something magnificent. And so actually in that very first scene when Bertha Russell says, Mr. White, I just grabbed my husband. I'm like, that's Stanford White. <laughs> so we're all very excited. But there are lots of these great architects. And if you're going on the Upper East Side, you can see mansions. In, for example, um, the Fish Mansion designed by Stanford White. It's still standing on the corner of Madison and 78th Street. So you can see these buildings are still there. Other architects, CPH Gilbert, the Trombauers, and Julian Abele, who was actually black, and he was um, the most important African-American architect um, of the Gilded Age. Um, it's really, it's fascinating. These buildings are still standing. Now, you've mentioned several times the Beaux art style, which seemed to be what was taking over at this point. Can you define that a little bit for us and also let us know if we're all sort of wandering around up there, what we should be looking for? So the Beaux Arts style, the Ecole de Beaux Arts was founded actually in Paris in the um, 17th century. And it was the greatest school for the fine arts, whether it's architecture or painting or sculpture. And people from all around the world travel to train there and American architects train there as well. Like I mentioned, Richard Morris Hunt, um, who trained in that style. And so it's this grand monumental kind of architecture that's based on the study of the Italian and French Renaissance, uh, French Baroque, um, very ornate, very monumental. So you'll find enormous columns, you'll find um, Buildings that really look like palaces that could have been standing on the Grand Canal in Venice or they could have been a chateau in Bordeaux. And they're transported to the United States. Hunt actually did these fabulous Gothic chateaus. And um, Alva Vanderbilt, who I think we would agree is sort of the model for Bertha Russell, um, Alva Vanderbilt had this is called the Petit Chateau, the little castle, the chateau that was designed by Hunt in this extravagant Gothic style. 
Jeff, do you have any thoughts about Stanford White? Or is there a Stanford White building that you would love to have seen that isn't there or one today? Oh, certainly. the His Madison Square Garden, I almost said the original, but his Madison Square Garden with all the, the kitsch, the Moorish, and uh, all those different elements on it. And, of course, the original Penn Station would have been magnificent to see. And the significance of the destruction of that original Penn Station was a moment in New York City history. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it led to the, it was such a desecration, it led to the landmark laws. And thank goodness that losing that uh, led to saving Grand Central Terminals, so, among other buildings. So, Jeff, I want to stick with you, and let's leave the glamorous Upper East Side for uh, just a minute. And I'd like to go downtown. There was a recent episode. We see Armstrong, who is the Van Rines maid, rather stealthily head off one day from the Upper East Side all the way downtown to the Lower East Side to visit her mother. And all of a sudden, we get an entirely different world that was going on at the same time as all of this. And and tours and the history of this world, Jeff, this is such a part of your expertise. Can you lead us through a little bit of what that world was like and the difference and what Armstrong might have experienced balancing these two different worlds? One thing that struck me watching that episode was there were so many elements, so many sensorial sort of shocks to the system because we went from this very staid brownstone. She's walking through muck. It's sort of chaos that we hear the chickens and we hear people screaming and babies crying. So we're in a different world. And then she goes into a dingy building, which was one of the over 80,000 tenements in this city. You know, Jacob Reese wrote How the Other Half Lives, but it was not the other half. It was really about the other 74% or something around that. So most New Yorkers living in these decrepit brick buildings that were erected to house as many people as possible, usually four apartments per floor, five, six stories, because of course, no elevator. And originally, and they were built, by the way, to house as many people as possible for maximum income for the landlords. So people shoved into these spaces, sweltering in the summer, freezing in the winter, Originally, no running water. You would have used a pump in the backyard next to the outhouse, which was not connected to the sewer system. As many as 300 people might be sharing that. Disease ran rampant, as you can imagine. Very little light, very little ventilation. So some of the diseases with which people suffered were uh, cholera and the white plague, tuberculosis. Jacob Reese said something about I marvel not that one in five children are killed by the house, but rather that any survive at all. It was really mm. that that horrific and that detrimental to one's health, the way people were living. And I shouldn't put it past tense because people are still living in these tenements today in varying degrees of repair or disrepair. What do you think about the character of Armstrong the Maid having to juggle this spending part of her time in this, you know— opulent world and then at the other time going home essentially I guess it must yeah, have been it, difficult I mean we clearly we see that she comes from an immigrant family I'm not going to say that she's ashamed of it but she does not want to share that aspect of her life with any of the people with whom she works you know what's interesting just coming to mind uh, Peggy's mother says at one point and I'm skipping around but she says she she's living in a whole different world and she can't really exist in this I'm not putting that exactly right. But you know what I mean? She says, like, she's not from there. That's not her world. Same thing with Armstrong, though, right? 
Absolutely. She probably, when you think about it too, had to do her best to get rid of her accent, to mm -hmm. learn to move and to behave mm -hmm. like in this in this world. So, and you know, most servants, although I, I believe they didn't like to call them servants back then, but most servants were immigrant young women mm -hmm. at the time. It's a whole industry. Oh, I did a whole show on it just a couple oh, yeah. of weeks right. ago. That's so right. uh, listeners do tune in to, to that. So when the show opens, it's 1882. And for the next 20 years or so, the city would really be transforming itself into this modern metropolis. So much of what we see today came from that period. So Emma, Jeff, what happened during this time that created the modern city? What I loved is at the very first episode when Peggy and Marion arrive and there's a storm and the ferries aren't running to get Peggy to Brooklyn because the Brooklyn Bridge was still being built. It didn't open until May of 1883. So it was still being built. They were still finishing it and it had taken 14 years to construct. It was the longest and tallest, largest suspension bridge in the world. And it connected these two separate cities. So something to keep in mind is New York City, and I said that before, is just Manhattan. We don't have the consolidation until 18, um, 1898. So there's still quite a lot of time. And so the Van Rynes, the Russells, they're in New York and Peggy going to Brooklyn is a whole nother thing. It's a whole separate place. Jeff, what do you think about infrastructure during that period, how it started and what happened? I mean, it was literally one of the most transformational times in the city's history, which in New York is saying a lot. I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody, but we get to see electricity introduced, which is a marvel, right? The use of electricity, street lamps, which really uh, transformed the streetscape, street lighting, rapid transit, I mentioned already, apartment dwelling starts to become common, even fast food, if you think about it. Uh, it was the introduction of delicatessens and hot dogs and hamburgers. You know, New York, nobody's got time to sit down grab it, right? So, so many of those elements, so much of the New York that we experience today sprang up. And you said in the 20 years, you know, it was exactly 20 years after 1882, 1902, when the Flatiron rose, which of course wasn't the first skyscraper, but it's um, definitely a beloved landmark of that era. I always think that, you know, New York's race to the top to create the tallest building. I, I always, for me, at least psychologically starts with the flat iron. I don't know. Oh, yeah. What do you think? It totally. And I mean, I, I'll sometimes have guests on tours and I'm walking around and we're looking at the flat iron and I like to remind them it's not, you know, a skyscraper per se, but it's that structure and the use of, you know, it seems it's something that we don't think about and something that we, that's hidden, but that steel skeleton, that changes it all. And the elevator, that changes it all. I mean, Elijah Otis, he tested his safety elevator and the passenger aid elevator back in 1857, but those are becoming more and more common. And actually, there was a great um, store down in what's today uh, present-day Soho, the Howitt store, and it had an elevator. And people go there to ride the elevator, too. That was a really cool, interesting thing to do and interesting thing to have. I did that when I was five at Jordan Marsh <laughs> yeah. with my mother. One thing that you mentioned, Emma, was the Brooklyn Bridge. And I would love you to both comment on that because this was this uh, not only architectural feat, but, but 
had an extraordinary purpose. Mm -hmm. Well, they called it the eighth wonder of the world when it was completed. And connecting these two separate cities, and you have to keep in mind the East River was um, a shipping lane, as well as, you know, there were ferries going back and forth um, to from Brooklyn and to, to New York. Um, but it was also shipping. All the wharves, all the piers. And so it was incredibly, incredibly crowded. And Brooklyn was a very, very busy city. And it's almost like our first commuter city. And so with the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, people had different modes of transportation, different ways to come into the city, including um, little trains that went back and well, there weren't little trains, there were trains that went back and forth, just all they did was crisscross the bridge. So for five cents, you could get from the city of Brooklyn to the city of New York in five minutes. And they just went back and forth all day. And then you could walk over it. And the the promenade that so many people love about walking over the Brooklyn Bridge, that was part and parcel of its very structure. And that's, you know, would be people across the East River, and they would be raised up to this incredible height. Um, like today, people go up to the top of the Empire State Building, the top of One World Trade Center. At the time, you go on the promenade of the Brooklyn Bridge and see the entire city at your feet. It must have been an incredible, a dramatic, incredible yes. thing. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, thoughts on the bridge? As a tour guide, you have all these <laughs> facts that are floating around your head, and I wish I could recall one of those. There's so many wonderful poetic uh, descriptions of the bridge. Oh, yeah. I do know, I do remember that someone referred to it, was it John Roebling, mm -hmm. as the greatest work of art of the American 19th century. And I feel every time it still has the capacity to leave me in awe when I when I walk that bridge and I see those towers. And one of my favorite stories, and I think all tour guides love to tell the story of Emily Warren Roebling, the woman who helped to complete the bridge. She was the liaison and go between between her ill husband and the engineers and the architects working on the site. And you know, she was a. I like to think of her. She must have been like a kind of an Aunt Agnes, um, Aunt Ada kind of person. And you know, she's a gentlewoman in the Gilded Age, and she's building a whole darn bridge. So I think And did a really good yeah, job of she's it. she's just fantastic. Yeah. So we've sort of talked a little bit about Brooklyn, which I think is fascinating. And one of, I think, one of the most fascinating parts of the Gilded Age, the series, is that we are seeing Brooklyn, and we're seeing another world of Brooklyn, certainly in the in the life of, of Peggy Scott. Can you talk about the, the African-American communities that existed in Brooklyn or elsewhere in the cities that we just weren't as aware of. A big one was destroyed, actually, in the 1850s. It was demolished for the construction of Central Park, and that would be Seneca Village, um, which no longer exists. And it was a very important African-American community. A, a whole village, uh, around 250 people lived there, uh, and it was founded back in 1832. And then on Staten Island, okay, Staten Island is it's one of our boroughs. People often sort of don't think about Staten Island, but one of the oldest black communities was out on Staten Island called Sandy Ground. And actually during the 1880s and 1890s, that was sort of the heyday of Sandy Ground. It was famous for its oysters. It had this bustling, bustling uh, community. And then when you refer to Brooklyn, I'm sorry, getting to Brooklyn, um, in the area that we now call it Weeksville out in Bedford-Stuyvesant, the um, property of Mr. Weeks, that he had owned all this property. And again, another free black community um, out there in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And so when we see Peggy and she says, you know, this is my world and it's different from your world, it was literally like that. I mean, the Civil War was a traumatic moment for the entire United States and a traumatic moment for um, New York City. And there was still this definite racial divide, this definite separation. And we see that in many scenes. And it's 
quite incredible how how open Aunt Agnes is, but while others, you've mentioned Armstrong before, she does not like having to share her space with an educated, cultured young lady because she's black. And that's that's the, her biggest problem that Armstrong has with Peggy, who um, is really of a totally different class, a much higher class, should we say, than Armstrong herself. Jeff, as Emma was talking, you were nodding away here. What are your thoughts about all this? Well, I was just thinking the dynamic between Armstrong and Peggy is sort of a microcosm of what was happening in the city because Armstrong is presumably of Irish descent. And here is this young African-American woman who seems to be excelling, and that's a threat. And then, of course, we know the, the 1863 draft riots, the horrors that were visited on black New Yorkers. And it's my understanding that that drove a lot of black New Yorkers out of the city into Brooklyn, where they founded communities. Because they weren't offered services by, you know, traditional services like lawyers, undertakers, doctors, there sprang up a whole industry to serve the community, as we see Peggy's father, the pharmacist. So, so yeah, those communities, um, uh, Fort Greene and um, South Williamsburg and eventually into Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. And then, and then I believe that the black communities that remained in Manhattan tended to be folks that didn't have the means to get out. So those tended to be tougher neighborhoods like the Tenderloin, Little Africa, which started out very prosperous and eventually became pretty decrepit. I think I'm so grateful that we got to see a little bit of this uh, in this in this show. It is time, my friends, to take a little brief break here from our tour around our Gilded Age city, and we will be right back. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm joined today by Emma Gess-Consalis and Jeff Dobbins, Master Tour Guides, and we're talking about the New York that we see in the Gilded Age and is seen on the new HBO show. So we've been saying throughout our little conversation this afternoon that the city was moving uptown along the park, certainly by the 1880s, but by mid-century, now we're talking about the 1850s, 1870s, we're going back a little bit. One of the most desirable neighborhoods and certainly entertainment districts and social centers was really further down. It was really around Madison Square. So we're talking about Broadway, Fifth Avenue, and and 23rd Street. And one of the most fascinating moments, I thought, uh, in a recent episode of the show was the one it took place. It was between Tom Rakes, dashing Tom Rakes, and, and Marion in Madison Square Park, where we see... Actually, it's the moment where I think where Tom Rakes proposes to Marion, if I'm not mistaken. But we see that happen near the arm of the Statue of Liberty, which is just one of the most extraordinary New York images ever. So, Emma, can you just explain what that was all about? Okay, so the Statue of Liberty, the idea for the Statue of Liberty actually started in 1869 in Paris, in France. Um, Edouard Laboulaye was the man who had the thought for the doing the Statue of Liberty. And he worked with Frederick Bartholdi and ultimately Gustav Eiffel did the inner support um, inside her. And they were raising money. They had to raise money to build the statue. It's very expensive, very large project, a symbol of the alliance between France and the United States, lots of different things. But the arm came to the United States actually in 1876, and it was on view in Philadelphia at the Centennial Exposition. 
And then it was brought to New York for display in New York because ultimately she would go into New York Harbor. And so she was set up there and was there from um, 1876 to 1882. And you could go into the arm. You could climb up the arm. There's a little staircase inside and go on to, you know, the little sort of little cup that holds the torch and stand there and you could buy postcards and you would pay a little fee to go up. It was about 42 feet up, up above the ground. And so you could look out over the park and it was a fun thing to do. And it was um, a, an attraction. And it was there, like I said, to help to raise funds. And so ultimately in 1882, it was taken down, brought back to, to Paris. The whole statue was put together and put on view in Paris and then dismantled and put into enormous crates and brought out to what was then called Bedloe's Island. Now today we call it Liberty Island. But yeah, it was there. That was a real thing. And um you can see actually a, a Lego model of it down oh. next to Madison Square Park. There's a big. Do we think that is a romantic place for a proposal? What do you think? The my Lego friends? model? The no, park? The, <laughs> no, the arm sticking out of the park in yeah. 1882. Well, I had heard tell that, that some nannies and some mothers were rather upset with this disembodied arm, which was frightening some small children. I, if I were a small child, I think they would have been excited by seeing a disembodied arm in the middle of a park. I, I would have been afraid of that, I think. Now, <laughs> Jeff, earlier on, we were talking about Stanford White, and you had said one of your favorite buildings to see, which is no longer there, was the second Madison Square Garden, which is the one that Stanford White built. So there was more than one. How did that work? People often are surprised that Madison Square Garden was down there. Right, yeah. Well, uh, without getting too much in the weeds, you know, that used to be a train terminal for one of Cornelius Vanderbilt's, uh, I believe it was the Harlem Railroad terminated there. Anyway, one of his railroads terminated there. And when he came to build Grand Central Depot up on 42nd Street, you had this empty shell of this train depot. And so that started being used for entertainment purposes, uh, especially big outdoor things like Wild West shows and horse shows, things like that. And that was replaced in 1890 by that Stanford White uh, sort of pleasure center where, again, Wild Bill Hickok would, um, uh, Buffalo Bill, I'm sorry, would, would present his Wild West shows and the dog shows and the, the grand spectacles, Ringling Brother and Barnum and Bailey Circus, of course. Uh, so it must have been quite a place to go. The, the rooftop restaurant where an infamous uh, event took place, but maybe that's for another podcast. We won't get into that. Well, I did an episode of the Gilded Gentleman True Crime Club for my oh. patron audience only. Yes, it was the murder of Stanford White. Oh, and there we took, go. And there it there took you go. So, They'll have to so tune in. That's right. Join as a patron and then you get that story. Absolutely. Now, speaking of entertainment centers, one of my favorite episodes took place at the Academy of Music, which was the great venerable opera house that was built in the 1850s. Way down, to, even further downtown in on uh, 14th Street on the corner of Irving Place. And what I love about that is going to the opera at that point, and certainly through a lot of the 19th century, really wasn't going. It wasn't about going to the opera at all. It was about being seen yes. and mm. yeah. and and seeing others. And I always say it was really about marrying off your daughter, right? Pretty much. Right. And <laughs> at the Academy of Music, they only had 18 boxes on either side of the stage. And what you wanted was, of course, a box seat so that the whole audience could watch you and not have to worry about whatever was going on on stage. But then as new money came in, and certainly it was the story of Vanderbilt money, and I do refer my friends to my episode Divas, Diamonds, and Drama for the entire story of the building of the new Metropolitan Opera, which had many more boxes and, of course, could accommodate many more people. And that was way uptown, well, at least 
compared to 14th Street, on 39th and Broadway, not so very far from where we're recording today. But that raises an interesting question, which is the beginning of Broadway theater. You know, did Mrs. Astor ever go to Broadway? I don't think so. I don't know. Rubbing elbows? Well, that's true. But, But Jeff, your expertise is so much in theater history and the development of that. So I'm curious, when did we first start to get Broadway shows, and when did we actually get shows on Broadway? Because in a way, they're two different things, I suppose. Yeah, and I sort of I have two different answers for that. One thing, theater going has been really part of New York's culture, going way way back. George Washington was an avid theater goer in his day, but the Broadway show that we'd recognize today really had its roots in the Bowery, in the popular music halls there, minstrel shows which, you know, today we think of those horrible stereotypes, but they had popular songs and dancing, like tap dancing, low comedy. And then vaudeville was apparently born at Tony Pastor's Opera House down there in 1860. So that's where the form really began. The very first Broadway musical happened on by accident in 1866, The Black Crook, where they sort of threw in the kitchen sink with spectacle and dancers and music. And it was a mega hit, made over a million dollars in 1866. But the physical theater district, we know, uh, has been creeping up Manhattan, just like the wealthy, from the very beginning. You mentioned the Academy of Music on 14th Street. Very close to that also would have been Barnum's Menagerie. Can you imagine getting out of your carriage? And, And then, of course, lots of low comedy, sometimes called the Rialto, just kept creeping up Madison Square, Herald Square, by the 1890s on Broadway in the upper 30s. And then it really leapt, actually, in 1895. Oscar Hammerstein, the famous lyricist's grandfather, built the Olympia Theater, 1895, at 44th and 7th. And the barrier had been broken. And by 1920, there were 53 theaters in the district that we today we know as the Broadway district. So there was a building boom. And are there any theaters that still exist from the earliest period that we can see today? Uh, well, there is today it's the New Victory Theater. It was originally the Republic Theater, 1900. It's a little difficult to get in because it's mostly uh, children's theater for you know school audiences and everything, but it's a beautiful jewel box theater, no longer a Broadway theater. But there are four Broadway theaters from 1903, two of which are my favorites, the New Amsterdam Theater, stunning. And then right across the street, sort of from 1903, is the Lyric Theater, been redone, but I used to actually manage that theater. So that feels like home to me. It's a very Mm -hmm. special place. So this period of the Gilded Age with all this influx of money, and certainly the city culturally was trying to copy Europe in many, many ways, many other cultural institutions, along with the Metropolitan Opera, were founded. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art was one of them, Emma, which is a a world and a place that you know so very well, having done some work with them. So how did that begin? So the Metropolitan Museum of Art was actually founded in 1870. The great patrons of the museum, the the old and new money of New York City, they felt like a great city needed a great museum, needed great galleries and great art. And so founded in 1870, it was um, in much smaller places, and it wasn't on Fifth Avenue, it wasn't up in Central Park until 1880. That's the first building went up in Central Park. And when Central Park was designed, um, Vox and Olmsted designed it for two museums as well. On the west side, you have a Museum of Natural History. On the east side, the Museum for Fine Arts. And so the Metropolitan Museum of Art is actually inside Central Park. Um, the footprint cannot be expanded anymore. It can just go up. And so different additions to the museum are 
been put sort of on top of it. But the core of the building, which is now the uh, medieval hallway, is the original core by Calvert Vaux from 1880. And then Richard Morris Hunt, who is the great Gilded Age architect we've talked about before, in um, 1895, he added the great hall and that great central facade. And that was built 1895 to 1902. His son actually completed that. That was Richard Howland Hunt. And then the side wings were added in the 19-teens by Charles McKim of McKim, Mead, and White, which was Stanford White's firm. And so it sort of spread out down along um, Fifth Avenue. And the great patrons of it were some of these great people in the Gilded Age, these robber barons that the, the wealthiest of the wealthy uh, had um, their collections and donated objects and money to the museum. And so some of the, actually some of the families that I talk about in my Gilded Age Mansions tour, they gave their collections or they gave funds to the museum to support the collection to help build it, the Fletchers, the Harknesses, and so on. What a legacy from the yes. Gilded Age there, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, one question I've just been dying to ask both of you is, as we sort of wind down here, when we look around New York of today, somebody once said to me that there's so much history in New York if you just know where to look. And I think we'd probably, as tour guides, all agree with that because that's so much of what we do is show people where to look. But when you think about the Gilded Age, where, what place would you pick, or places, would you pick today for each of you personally that where you can see the Gilded Age. Jeff, you want to dive in first? Well, to follow up on what Emma was talking about, that grand lobby of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 1902. I always tell guests when I do tours there, it's meant to just leave you in awe of the grandeur of the place. And it still does. I also love, also picking up on what you said, Calvert Fox. We discussed him before. And I feel like he's an unsung hero of the era. So, of course, we know the Bethesda Terrace, those gorgeous arches and bridges in Central Park, and the Jefferson Market Courthouse Library. So, so many of his works, his, his legacies in the city. Also, I love those ornate buildings by Cass Gilbert, like the old Customs House and the Woolworth Building, which I know is stretching us out of the Gilded Age, but just those ornate, the Cathedral of Commerce. I just love those buildings. Absolutely. Emma, What? What? where do you see the Gilded Age today? Well, I, I, of course, I'm very partial to the tour that I do, the Gilded Age mansions. And I have to say, there's one building that I, I just adore, also because you can go inside and you have this sort of intimate feel and getting to know, um, getting to know, in quotes, uh, a Gilded Age mansion. That would be what's today the Ukrainian Institute. And you know, Ukraine is on everybody's minds, unfortunately, these days. But that was the Isaac Fletcher House. And it's by CPA. H. Gilbert, who was one of the great um, Gilded Age architects. And it's um, from the 1890s. And you can go inside. It's open to the public. And you can go upstairs and you can see these rooms of the beautiful wood paneling, the wonderful um, details of the marquetry on the floors, beautiful chandeliers, the bow windows, and then just the outside of the building itself, even if you don't go inside, the outside has wonderful, wonderful gothic details. It's sort of like this funky little gothic chateau, very extravagant with, with gargoyles and atlases and figurines and carvings and floral designs, all of it. And it's right there on the corner of 5th and 79th Street. So that's definitely one of my favorite buildings because it's it has the proportions also that you don't feel overwhelmed in it. And so you can go into that space and, and understand it and sort of imagine you're back in, in that great period. It's also fairly intact. There hasn't been yeah. much 
much work done t- to oh, it yeah. since yeah. The, the Gilded Age, so it you really can see it there. Two of my favorites, I think, will always be uh, the Morgan Library, mm-hmm. seeing oh, yes. J.P. Yes. Morgan's stunning mm-hmm. library, and then the Frick Collection, Henry Clay Frick's home, which is undergoing a restoration now. But when we can go back into it, I think it will be even more stunning. Now, my very last question, which I'm really excited to ask you both, is so you are tour guides. We are all tour guides. And you have to be a bit of a historian to be a tour guide. So where do you see the intersection between someone who defines himself as a historian versus a tour guide? What does a tour guide bring to telling the story of history uh, that you think is special? Well, I think what you just said is telling the story. I mean, we, we tell stories. We, we help to, I like to think we help to bring history to life. So we have to have, and I think any tour guide worth um, their salt has to have the history. You know, we need to know the events. We need to understand our city. We need to understand how it's grown, how it's developed, the main figures, the main characters. But as tour guides, we need to weave that all together in a way that makes it understandable and relatable to our visitors, to our guests. And, you know, we love our city so much. We love to to show it off, to tell people about it. So like you said at the beginning, yes, I, I do live in New Jersey, but I'm a New Yorker. I'm here basically <laughs> every day. And I love to show the city. And so you show it in a way that you give people the history, but you also give them those facts, those information in a way that intrigues them and inspires them and makes them see the city in a whole new way. Absolutely. Jeff, what do you think? Uh, I absolutely agree. We pursue this, this, you know, acquiring all this knowledge about the history and the stories. I, I should speak for myself out of love for it, but then to be able to craft this material in a way that's concise and engaging is really important. Uh, when I do tours of the Met, I know that one of the things I think that people enjoy is not just l- looking at these masterpieces, but learning the story behind them, and especially if there's a little intrigue or scandal. So it's bringing that, and 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 I I feel like I'm passionate about this, and it's my job to convey that to people to hopefully have them fall in love with the city, as I have. And then ask questions or follow their own particular Mm -hmm. flights of of interest. One question for you, Emma, is that you often quote a source called the King's Handbook, which I Mm -hmm. always found fascinating because tourists today, all of us, we love guidebooks or tour guide sites. But can you talk a little bit about the King's Handbook as we end up here? Because that was sort of a Gilded yeah. Age tour book, right? Yeah, so the King's Handbook is really, it's its kind of crazy, and I sort of stumbled on it by accident. So Moses King was actually born in England, and then he moved to the States when he was young. He went to Philip Exeter Academy, he went to Harvard, and he started writing travel guidebooks in um, 1878. But he started in, in the 1890s, he started a sequence, of, a series of books on the great cities of Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. And so the King's Handbook that I referred to is from 1892, and it's over a 1,000 pages. It's insanely detailed, and it takes you from retail establishments to wholesale establishments to bridges to parks to every single thing under the sun that you could think of that you'd want to be seeing in New York City or understand a little bit about in the city. And so it has these marvelous descriptions and has photographs in it as well. So it's 1892. And so you could purchase a guidebook like the King's Handbook or even other guidebooks. And the guidebooks from the 1800s, late 1800s, they give you a whole new look into New York City. And so I encourage people to look them up and you can find them 
online. Um, the Internet Archive is fantastic. You just look in and you can literally leaf through the pages and, and read this. And I can imagine somebody schlepping this rather heavy tome around and getting to see all the nooks and crannies in New York City. So my listeners, you can go online and find um, from Digital Archives, The King's Handbook and, and read and see for yourself, or you can certainly enjoy what Emma and Jeff have shared with us today. Emma and Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. What a pleasure to get together oh, thank again. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. Chat, I mean, there's so much to say here. We could go on to maybe another second episode sometime. We'll I, just I have we to see about that. Thank you so much. My listeners, please find Emma and Jeff through Instagram and also their live and virtual tours through Bowery Boys Walks. Uh, you can find all that information. And all the links will be on the episode page of my website, thegildedgentleman.com. I also invite you to join The Gilded Gentleman on Patreon. I truly need your support to produce the show. All of your support helps directly with research and production and studio costs. And as a patron, you will have access to some patron-only content. And here's some previews of shows before they go live as regular podcasts. So visit patreon.com slash The Gilded Gentleman. And so, my friends, I will see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold?